0: If you have your Bible, please turn with me to our sermon text, which you can find on the Pew Bible, page 885, 885. We're looking at Romans 3, verses 21 to 26 today. In this uh, summer series, we're looking at the theme of salvation and all the various parts of it, according to the Bible. Today we come to a really big one. I know all of them are big, but this one is kind of central to all the rest of them. This is justification, which you might not know even what that means. Uh, I'll hope to explain that to you as well as apply it to us as best as I can this morning. Let's look starting at verse 21 and we'll see what the word has for us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Amen. When have you worried about being accepted? Have you ever worried about being accepted before? Maybe a little bit, yep, yep. Hands are raised, uh, heads are shaking, smiles are on the face. Uh, But even bringing up that question, I know, might not just bring smiles, but it might actually also bring very hard memories, painful memories. Um, I've got a few of those painful ones. I'll share One that's not uh, necessarily the most painful, but it was one that really was uh, stuck with me. It came at the end of my high school days, as I was preparing to transition from high school to college, and I started sending out my application to all these schools. And I was taking the SAT and all this stuff. And uh, kids, in order to understand where I was at, you got to understand there was a thing back then called the mail, right? The mail. A man would actually come to your house and pick up letters and deliver them through magical things called stamps. If you have more questions, I'll talk to you about it at the beach trip. We can discuss stamps. But the reason that's important is there was a lot of waiting. After I sent in the thing, there was no online form. You had to actually mail it in and then wait and wait and wait, hoping they received it, first of all, and then second of all, hoping am I going to be good enough? Are my scores going to be high enough? My grade's good enough? My, did I get enough community service? You waited until you got that letter in the mail. And when you saw the, the name of the school on the outside, oh boy, what butterflies began to come. What memories like that do you have? One writer says this paragraph that we just read in in Paul's letter to the Romans, this one paragraph he says is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Boom. Isn't that cool? I think he's right. Because in this paragraph, just these six, seven short verses, the Bible tells us That we human beings can be accepted by God. Did y'all hear me? It's telling us that we can be accepted by God and better, even better yet, we can know that we're accepted by God. What a brilliant thing that is. This goes way more, than way beyond just knowing that you're accepted by fellow human beings. You're accepted by your maker, according to this paragraph. It shows you that you can be. It shows you how you can be. It shows you how to receive the gift. That's what the word righteousness that appears seven times in the passage. You can see that as you look down at the paragraph. Seven different times he mentions righteousness. The word justification and justify is just another way of translating the word righteous. Same, same basic word in Greek. What that means is God has provided acceptance for his people in one way through his son, Jesus. Take a look at your bulletin. We want to look at three things this morning, three simple steps. First of all, uh, justification is manifested, Paul tells us. Then justification has been achieved. He shows us how. And then lastly, he shows us how justification can be received. Y'all ready? First of all, let's look at justification manifested. He tells us that in verses 21 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God, there's that word, righteousness. The righteousness of God has been manifested or made plain, made clear, Uh, To manifest something means it's not hidden anymore, it's out in the open, it's obvious, the light is shining on it, the sirens are going, you ought to see it. Well, what ought we to see? The righteousness of God apart from the law. Now look down at your Bible at that word righteousness. Uh, the The word might not be something that's easily definable by you at first glance, but notice what word is at the very beginning of it. What is it? The word right. And that's the core meaning, the root meaning of the word. To be right is to, well, be correct. It's to be in right standing. It's to measure up. The word righteousness is that state of measuring up to God. Being accepted according to God's rule and measurement and God's standard. So notice, every single time Paul uses the word righteousness and the word justify, seven times in this paragraph, that's what he means. There is a right standing with God, coming from God, apart from the law. Now that's amazing, because you would think, just like you know, applying to get into schools, that God would accept us either as righteous or not as righteous based on our resume. Isn't that the way it works in colleges? They look at your achievements or lack thereof, and they judge you based on your achievements strictly. No grace and mercy in the college admissions process, just straight-up merit. And we would think God would be the same way. In fact, sometimes it seems like God is the same way. And yet this is telling us that God has manifested to the world that he is not that way. He has determined ever since the first man and woman sinned and lost their righteousness of their own, which we all have lost, he determined from that moment that he was going to accept people not on the basis merely of their merit, he was going to accept them on the basis of a righteousness that he gives them by grace. It tells us there how he does it. He does it through Jesus Christ, do you see that in verse 22? The righteousness comes through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Believe is different than do. Believe is different than works. There is potentially a righteousness by our own merit. Paul says that's not what we're hoping in. We can't achieve that. What we can achieve is the righteousness that we receive by faith from Jesus. And that has been made known to everybody. When Jesus came into the world, he proved it, because he loved sinners. He received them. He proclaimed to them forgiveness. He proclaimed to them a changed life. He Well, after all, he died on the cross for them while he was dying. I don't know if you knew this, but as Jesus died, he cried out, Forgive them, Father. What grace, what justification and righteousness was being gifted Through the blood of Jesus, God manifested it, but it wasn't new. This was something that God had been planning ever since the beginning. In fact, Paul tells us there in verse 21 that the law and the prophets, do you see that? The law and the prophets bear witness to this reality. Notice how law and prophets have a capital L and a capital P there in that verse. Because those two words together stand for the whole Old Testament the law and the prophets, part one, part two of the Old Testament. In all of the Old Testament, if anybody was paying attention, they would have learned, I can't be saved by my own goodness because I'm not good enough. I can never measure up. But somehow, way, God is making me good enough. I mean, think about how the Old Testament works. you got men like Noah, Abraham, David. These men are the greats. Women like Sarah. Bathsheba, and these women were the greats, obviously not because they earned it, but somehow God had gifted them acceptance and gifted them forgiveness. How? Well, it was borne witness to every time they went to worship. When they went to the temple, they went, not empty-handed, but with animals that were sacrificed, with blood that was shed. And the Bible says it wasn't the blood of animals that actually washed away sins. Those were types. They were symbols of what was to come. God was going to set forth Jesus as a sacrifice. And on the basis of his life and his death, Sinners were going to be accepted into God's heavenly courts. Wow. Think about that this morning. Think about the marvel of it. And then consider in verse 21 how Paul says it's manifested now. It's obvious, or at least it ought to be. Have you ever been pulled over by a police officer? I think most, probably most people have, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah. Does it work to say, oh, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't see the red light? Uh, stop sign? What stop sign? I, d- I never saw a stop sign. You can't write me that ticket, I didn't see it. Speed limit? I didn't see the sign. Does that work? No, in fact, it might make it worse because then they'll be like, this is a really bad driver. They don't even see the red light. Literally, it's hanging on a string right in front of you, and it's red, glowing. It's manifest. When something is manifested, that means there is no excuse for living like it's not true. There's no excuse for ignoring it. And yet, isn't it right that oftentimes we and many people in our society and culture live as if this sentence is false? Say, how do we do that? Well, number one, we do that because every time we think that righteousness, goodness, is something that I can define for myself... Rather than getting it from God. I'm living like the obvious is not true. Aren't we pros at that. In our society and culture. That might not be wrong for you. Someone will say. But it's it's wrong for me. Or that might not be right for you. But it's all right for me. I don't feel like it's wrong. Therefore it's not wrong. What are we doing there? We're, We're pretending like we are the judges of righteousness. As if it came from us as if we had some authority to give it. The Bible says somebody who thinks that way, just frankly, at the end of their life, they're going to be put to shame. That's the frankest way I can say it. You will be put to shame because you will stand before the God of all righteousness. And your definitions won't fly in front of him. We do it another way too. Every time we pretend... As if we can measure up to God's righteousness on our own. We live as if the manifest were not manifest. And this one I think most of us can relate to. Though we hear in church and though we've been taught from childhood, we're saved by grace, we're saved by grace, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We wake up in the morning thinking, by works, by works, by works, by works, amazing works. How hard the effort that saved a basically good person like me. Isn't that our hymn? Listen, according to this, there is nothing more offensive to the Lord God than for us not to believe in the gift of forgiveness and acceptance by grace. You insult God by seeking to present him with a righteousness of your own. Either self-defined or self-proclaimed met. Just proclaiming yourself to have met the standard. That is an offense. In fact, what we're saying when we do that is we're saying, Jesus, you wasted your time. You didn't have to die for me. I can do it on my own. You wasted your blood. What an offensive thing. And yet, every time, even as Christians, when we when we act like the forgiveness that God has announced to us is not true of us on our bad day. Do you ever do that? On your bad day? You think, well, it can't be today that God loves me. It can't be today that he forgives me, right? It was on the day when I was feeling better. Well, when you think that way and operate that way, it is an offense to him. You're denying the undeniable. Jesus gave himself up for you out of love that you might receive the same love of the heavenly father that he has known forever. Wow. Are you trying to deny what has been clearly manifested? Let's look at the second thing here. Paul helps us to see that justification was not just manifested, it was achieved once and for all. Once and for all. Uh, He tells us in verses 21 all the way to 26, the whole rest of the paragraph, various aspects of the cross of Jesus Christ. He describes it very plainly. And he makes it clear that what Jesus did on the cross forever seals the justification of those who believe. They are made and declared righteous before God forever based on what he did that day 2,000 years ago. So to give you an illustration, uh, going back to when I was at the end of my high school, I was applying for all these colleges. Um, I was nervous about going to college, but I'll tell you one thing. After the graduation that I was never nervous about again, and that was passing high school. You know, I've never once worried about passing high school since that day, that glorious day on 2002 when I walked across the phosphate bowl and received from Mayor Hatch's hand that beautiful paper that says, done. I know it doesn't say done, but basically done, completed, diploma, certificate of completion, You've passed it all. You do not have to go back and do it again. I've never once worried about Algebra 2. I've worried about it a whole bunch before I got that diploma, but I did not worry about it since. And what Paul is saying there in verses 21 to 26 is that in Christ Jesus, through the cross, every Christian receives a diploma from his hand. And on that diploma is written... The completion of all that needed to be done for that person to be accepted by God forever. Fully forgiven of every sin they have ever and will ever commit. And fully accepted as righteous as if they had done everything right their whole life. All through the cross. Notice the words that Paul says are emblazoned on the diploma. They're they're written, you can imagine, in gold letters. He tells us in verse 24, the word redemption is written there. And then in verse 25, the the word propitiation is written. And then in verses 25 and 26, the word twice, demonstration or show is written. And those three words together express what the cross achieved. So let me walk through it with you. And this will help explain to you how someone is made right with God. First of all, there's the word redemption. Y'all know probably this word, maybe a little bit better than the other two. Uh, When you go on to your Amazon account, you may hit the word redeem a gift card. Well, tell me what happens when you hit that link and you type in the code. What happens? All of a sudden, I love watching it, right? The numbers go up, and boom, you hit the number, and you've got that money to spend. It was money already paid for, which is now being released and set free for you to use however you want to use it. It's a beautiful thing. Well, in the Bible, it's the same idea. To to redeem is literally to pay a cost that results in freedom. A cost has been paid on the cross, Paul is saying. In Jesus Christ there is redemption. I'm looking now at verse 24. There is redemption in Christ Jesus, meaning now that he has paid the cost, we get to go free. We are justified verse 24 by his grace as a gift. We're declared righteous. Our sins no longer hold us captive. We're not slaves to them. We're not slaves to guilt or shame or any of those things. We are free because we know that in heaven there is a voice that says, you're mine. You're accepted. I mean, imagine it. Imagine knowing before you ever get there what God is going to say to you on the judgment day. Don't you want to know that? This is why this is the single greatest paragraph ever written because it tells you how. You can know that God is going to say, if you're a believer in Jesus, you know God is going to say, welcome, you are mine, I bought you. At the cost of my son's blood, therefore you'll never not be mine again. Into the ages of eternity, you have been redeemed, purchased, bought, you're mine. Wow. Now look at that second word. It it gives us even a little bit more Indication. This is also written on our diploma of salvation. It says propitiation. And now this is one you don't click on on the Internet. <laughs> and you've probably never, ever used this word a day in your life. But you've done it before. You have propitiated before. Let me tell you how. Uh, husbands, when you do something wrong and you make your wife mad... You may decide to stop on the way home and get her something nice to smooth things over. Do you ever do that? Some flowers, some roses, whatever it is, chocolates. Take her out for dinner. Wives can also do this sometimes to husbands. When you do that, you are offering a propitiation. That's what the word means. The other person is angry with you and you know it. And you actually know the reason why you're going to offer it is you know they're right. Or else you probably wouldn't offer it. You know they are, you deserve for them to be angry to you because you did something wrong. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to demonstrate your willingness to be reconciled. You're trying to turn their anger away and turn it into gladness. And so you offer something in hopes that when they see it, They'll be willing to forgive. Well, the Bible uses that word when it comes to the sacrifice of Jesus. It also uses that word for all the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament. God is angry with sin. The sacrifice is provided in order to turn away his anger so that he would be angry with us no more. Now, you may hear that and think, well, that sounds really kind of medieval there. I mean, we're talking about God being this angry person that we have to offer blood gifts in order to keep him from being angry. Hold on. You're thinking of propitiation in a pagan way, if that's what you're thinking about. The pagan way is the gods have a bad temper. The Lord our God does not have a bad temper, right? The Lord our God is angry in the sense that he is opposed relentlessly to what is evil. It's not a temper. It's a settled opposition to what is against him. That's different. In the pagan view, we human beings offer something small in order to change the mind of these tempestuous gods that we can't control, but we're trying to control them by giving these these different types of sacrifices. The Bible doesn't say that is ever what we do. In fact, it says here, that it's not we at all who offer the propitiation to God. You can't stop by the spiritual publics and get a spiritual dozen roses to buy God off. It's not how God works. What does it say in verse 25? Look at it. It says, God put forward the propitiation. It doesn't say human beings said... Here's what I'm going to do, God, to make it up to you. It's that God said, I'm going to put something out to quench my justice, to satisfy my justice, so that I can still have mercy on the unjust. Let me say it to you in the way that John Stott puts it. This is a great quote. It'll make you laugh, and it might confuse you a little bit, but it it makes the point really well. It says, this, this propitiation is the righteous basis on which the righteous God can righteous the unrighteous without compromising his righteousness. (laughs) Let me do it again, okay? (laughs) This is the righteous basis on which the righteous God can righteous the unrighteous without compromising his righteousness. In other words, when God forgives a sinner, it's not because God has decided no big deal. God can't do that. Or else God would be unjust. He would not be righteous himself. In the same way that a judge who let a murderer go free would not be a righteous judge. No, what he did was he offered at his own cost the payment the punishment, so that instead of opposing us, he could now be for us and favorable to us. It was God providing the sacrifice to himself in Jesus Christ, which shows you this, God loves us even in our sin. While we were yet sinners, God still loved us and determined to do everything necessary to make it right. Justified. Well, we got to hurry because we're running out of time. The third word on the diploma, you can see in verses 25 and 26, is the word show in the ESV. Uh, I, I prefer the, the NIV here and a few other translations which use the word demonstration. I think that's better. The cross was a Demonstration of God's righteousness. And it's for the same reason we just said. It tells us in verse 25 that God had in his divine forbearance been passing over sins for years. And when you read the Bible, you see it. God's always forgiving people. He's always letting people go without punishing them right away. And you're thinking, what what is God doing? Is he even a judge? And what this is saying is that God was saving up that judgment For the day when he would unleash it on Jesus, his son, proving forever that he is both righteous himself and the righteouser of the unrighteous, which is what verse 26 means when it says he is just and the justifier. He's righteous and the righteouser of every person who has faith in Jesus. Y'all listen, this is the cross. This is the diploma that every Christian believer has put in their hands the moment they believe. You can pull it out and you can see these words anytime you need to. Redeemed. Propitiated. Demonstrated. In the same way that I don't ever have to worry about Algebra 2 again, praise the Lord, You do not in Christ have to worry about being condemned for your sin again. Think about that. Marvel at that. When the hymn says that we should survey the wondrous cross, that's what it means. Do y'all know that hymn? When I survey the wondrous cross on on which the Prince of Glory died. This is surveying it. It's not only just saying the word cross, cross, cross like it's a lucky charm. It's telling you what the cross actually achieves. Surveying its details, its borders, its corner posts so that you can know the broad land that God has moved you into through his grace. Sometimes I let old sins haunt me, do you? Sometimes I feel like present sins are insurmountable, do you? Sometimes I'm such a worrywart, I even worry about future sins that I may commit. Do you? Sometimes, maybe you're like this, and when I think about standing before God, there's still a little bit of fear and worry. Do you have that? According to this great paragraph, you don't need to have that anymore. It does not have to worry you and haunt you and hound you. Instead, in its place, you can receive the gift of righteousness in Jesus, which you know will be and is accepted before the great judge of all. Wow. What a diploma. What a diploma. My past sins are no more relevant to my eternal destiny than the Pythagorean theorem is relevant <laughs> to my passing high school anymore it's already done not sure if you're listening because that's good that, that's why this is called gospel good news now last thing This us take just a few minutes justification must be received though and, and you've heard me say it a few times throughout the sermon if you have faith in Christ if and that's a, that's an if God has given His Son up for us. God wants the gospel to be proclaimed to every creature, and I'm proclaiming it to you now. But every person must receive Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, in order for this justification to become a reality. Before we receive Christ, we might think we're okay with God, but mm, we're not. And probably in our clearer moments, we know that deep down inside, we have that sense of unfinished business. A great example of that is the great Martin Luther. Martin Luther was, uh, you know, a great Christian in history, but before he discovered this truth about justification, he was a mean, grumpy monk. Not to say all monks are mean and grumpy, I'm not saying that, but he was one that was mean and grumpy because he believed that. He had to earn God's love. And so he spent all his days, you know, beating himself up. And he confessed so many sins to his priest that his priest got bored and told him, Martin, you're making stuff up at this point, and it's not even interesting. Like, next time, bring me a sin that I actually want to hear about. Make it a little racier. That same priest later asked the miserable Martin, Martin, why are you doing it this way? Don't you love God? And Martin, in a moment of honesty, brutal honesty, said, Love God. Sometimes I hate Him. Why do you hate God? Because God has the standard. Martin said, Righteousness and it's so tall, and it's so big, I can never reach it. I'm always trying to reach it, and I can't reach it, and I know it, and I, I, I despise him sometimes for it. How could he require of me what I cannot offer? The priest goes, oh, okay, I see. You know what he did? He said, Martin, I've got an idea. Next semester... You're going to teach the book of Romans to a group of students at the college across the street, down the road. Have you read Romans? Martin said, no, I've never read it. You might want to start there because you're going to teach it. Martin Luther began to read it. And chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, hit him like a lightning bolt from heaven. He said, when I discovered that righteousness of God wasn't just a thing I had to measure up to, but it was a thing that God gave me by grace. He said it was like heaven was opened and I was born all over again. He spent the rest of his life actually turning Europe upside down with this message because not many people knew it either because we are so painfully willfully ignorant of those things that should be manifest to us. And so I plead with you, don't be willingly ignorant of it. God does not deal with us as our sins deserve. God in Christ has given us full forgiveness, full acceptance, forever. Jesus said, two men went to the temple at the same time to pray. The first man was a Pharisee, very religious. The second man was a tax collector, very irreligious. They went at the same time. They both prayed in the same way. They stood apart by themselves, standing up, praying. That's where the similarity stopped. The Pharisee stood by himself because he thought no one was worthy of him. And so he stood apart from the crowd, the masses, and he said this prayer. You can imagine him yelling it in the middle of the temple. Lord, thank you that I'm not like other people. I haven't done those things they did. What terrible people. I've done all the good things. What a good guy I am. Oh, God, thank you that I'm so good. The tax collector was praying by himself because he didn't think he was worthy of anybody else. He stood there with his head down, beating his chest, Jesus said, saying, Father, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You know what Jesus said next? It was the second man not the first who went home to his house that day, justified. He uses the same word, justified. The man who received righteousness as a gift got it. The one who claimed it as an achievement didn't get it. The question before us always, every day, is which One, do you want to be? Which one do you think your spouse would rather be married to? Which one do you think your kids would rather have as their parent or grandparent? Which one would you rather work with? Right? We all know the answer. What a paragraph! I'd say it's the greatest one ever written because it resolves the greatest question that you could ever ask.